Today on the podcast, we're having an important conversation around mental health. Given the nature of the topic, I thought it was important that I include this trigger warning for anyone that might want to avoid this topic of conversation right now, which includes discussion around anxiety, health, medication, and depression. My guest is one of New Zealand's most experienced and successful strategic facilitators, Alicia Mackay, and she is known for tackling the tricky stuff in life, work, and leadership. Here's the thing. When I invited Alicia to join me on the podcast, my intention was to talk about her great new book, You Don't Need an MBA. But as you'll quickly learn in this conversation, mental health doesn't discriminate, and it can affect people who we might feel have it all together, including Alicia and myself. Today, we talk through some of our own experiences around mental health. Hello. Hi. We'll do it live. Do it live. I can all write it and we'll do it live. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. Joining me on the podcast is Alicia Mackay, my good friend and corporate rebel, tackling all the tricky stuff in leadership. She's worked with some of New Zealand's most senior leaders in government, business and community, injecting fresh perspective and sharp insight. She's recently released her second book called You Don't Need an MBA, Leadership Lessons That Cut Through the Crap. Alicia Mackay, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Hi. I, I'm laughing because I, I'm saying welcome, but I should be saying welcome back. If people have listened to this, like the, for the purest people who've been listening to this podcast since before it was a podcast and it was a LinkedIn live, they would know that you've actually already been on this podcast <laughs> and you were the, the second person I ever interviewed, but your episode didn't end up on the podcast. It's, it's kind of disappeared out of sight. Any, any reason, any understanding as to why? Uh, it could possibly be because I thought it would be a really good idea, mid some kind of lockdown delirium in New Zealand, to tune in from a kayak in the middle of an inlet from the ocean. <laughs> that's that's the truth. I, <laughs> the funny part about it was that I was only live streaming my video and, and I obviously wasn't very clear in how I communicated that to you. Yeah. And so... When I called you, um, you you answered and you were like, I'm I'm in a kayak, I'm out on the water, you had all your camera set up. We taped we gaffer taped the camera to the front of the kayak. And I'm like, this is gonna be great. And sure there might be a little bit of patchy audio, but it will be worth it because you'll be watching the kayak, not realizing that in fact if I was going to sacrifice one of my A V streams, it was not gonna be the audio. <laughs> <laughs> the one that was really the most important was the audio. So so yeah, so so people if I mean if you dig back through my LinkedIn profile, if you go through there, you'll be able to find the interview that we did <laughs> last year. <laughs> With you on a kayak, you won't see you on a kayak, but you will definitely hear that you're out on the water I for sure. I have a photo somewhere, actually. I should send it to you. It's just me looking I, I will... like an absolute plonker out <laughs> in my kayak with my camera on the front. Well, when this episode goes live, I'm certainly going to be using that photo as the promo for it. Well, so um, perhaps people are listening to it now because they've seen the photo and, and it probably wouldn't have made sense at the time, but hopefully now it does. So um, since then, thankfully, a lot more people are listening to the podcast, which is good news. Um, and so there's probably a lot of people who don't know you yet. So I'm, I'm still asking the same three fast facts, which is where were you born? What was your first job? And what do you do now? So Ooh. where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? Okay, I was um, I was born in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, so that's a um, city in the, the largest city in the South Island of New Zealand, famous for... 
uh, bogans, um, <laughs> lawyers, skinheads, earthquakes, and other such things. It's really you're selling it really well. Mm-hmm. It's lovely city. <laughs> so I grew up in Christchurch. Uh, my first job. Oh, so my first formal employment where I actually had like a contract and got paid properly would have been um, my parents for a time owned what I don't know if you have this word in Australia a tea rooms in um, a tiny little kind of truck stop town halfway between Christchurch and Ashburton about half an hour to Christchurch and um, so you would go it's sort of like a diner but also a fish and chip shop in an ice cream store and so I worked That is there. way too many combinations for yeah, something to be done well. It's a bit confusing. Um, so I would, you know, cook fish and chips and make ice creams and serve people cups of teas at the tea rooms. That was probably my first official job. Um, what was the third question? Oh, what do I do now? Well, you've, come, you've come a long way since then. A little bit. Let's well, I was only that. 13, 12, 13. Okay. I was quite young. Um, That's fair. But I've always, it's funny you say, because I've always been um, a bit hustly. And so prior to having that kind of employment, I was doing you know, leaflet drops and basically anything I can get my hands on, setting up little stools outside the house. After that job, I had I held down multiple jobs when I was 14 at high school. I was at a fish and chip shop, a supermarket. I did house cleaning. Like, I've always been a bit... High-performing? Yeah. And clearly nothing has changed? No. And what do I do now? That is such a good question because I'm not sure that I always n- know, actually. I'm at a, <laughs> a bit of a... I think like a lot of us are post-pandemic and a bit of a liminal crossroady kind of a spot where I am doing what I have been doing, but I'm not sure if it's what I'm continuing to be doing, which is quite a vague answer, isn't it? But I think there's a bit of that, you know, so I um I do know the things that I do do. So I'm an author. I write books about things. I'm a speaker. I speak on stage about strategy and change and leadership, how to, um, cut through the crap and, and make it easier to live and work and lead in a way that feels a bit better. Uh, I do training and professional development in uh, leadership and strategy and change. Uh, and I do, I do still do a little bit of strategy work. So I work with leadership teams to support them to set direction and work out what they want out of their next phase in their business or in their team and how they're going to get there. I do a lot less of that now. I'm trying to do less of that. So uh, we had a meeting uh, in my business the other day where we went, you know, let's not solve people's problems for them anymore. (laughs) In fact, let's (laughs) not even help them solve their problems. Let's only take on work that is teaching people the skills to solve their own problems. And so that's kind of where I'm at from a business perspective right now. Uh, But more broadly, I'm also a mother of three beautiful daughters uh, I've got three three girls, 15, uh, 11, and 6. That's their ages, not their names. Um, <laughs> Some kind of weird celebrity name. They are the just, and they're the funnest kids. Like you, so you post right. stories and, and photos of them all the time just doing, they're just like the most outrageously funny kids. They're so cool. They're my, just my favourite people in the entire world. They're incredible. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is I would usually not have such a challenging time asking the question about what I'm doing. And part of that is because my life is usually just full to the brim with work. And that's the thing that takes up most of the space. And I've had a shit year health-wise. And for the first time in a very long time, the bulk of my energy is not directed at work. It's been the other stuff, reading, my house, my children, my friends, um, 
who I actually am as a person. And it's been a long time since I've had that much energy going there. And so that's interesting. So I'm actually doing a bit more being a person than usual and a bit less being Alicia Mackay. Hi, I'm Alicia Mackay. <laughs> I do I do like your speaker voice. Thank which you. um that that's it's such a fascinating space because I think um people who are listening, I mean myself included, resonate with some of the the challenges the last 12 months has brought in a in a general sense, but I've, you know, we've had a couple of conversations um, over the last 12 months and and I've watched you kind of like on this bit of a journey of discovery in a lot yeah. of different ways. But since the age of 13, scooping ice cream and selling fish and chips and serving tea, you've been a, a high capacity, high performing person. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about anything over the last 12 months? What I are mean, you learning? What are you noticing at the moment? Yeah, I think I read a book at the start of the pandemic um, and I can't remember the what do you call the the second line of a book title that's the, the strap line? I can't remember Sub-title. the strap line, but the, um, the oh, yeah. title's Epidemics. And it talks about, there's a line out of it that I haven't been able to shake about how epidemics and, and pandemics, they um, they hold a mirror and a magnifying glass to society. So they show you they show you a lot about the way people are living that has nothing to do with, with public health. And I think the version of that that I've experienced and I've, shared that experience with other people I know over the last year or year and a half is that it's been a time of examination that goes far beyond the reach of anything that's kind of touched by COVID. And I feel a little bit guilty having a tough time over the last year and a half because I'm in New Zealand and we just haven't had a tough time over the last year and a half. You know, in in terms of the global impact and what's currently happening in Australia where you are right now, you're in flipping lockdown, Shane. And we haven't been in lockdown since, what, June 2020 in New Zealand? We don't. Our life, for all intents and purposes, has continued pretty much as normal. And the fact that I have had such a hard time feels a little bit, I don't know, wrong, selfish. I mean, it's not helpful to have survivor's guilt or whatever that is, mm. but it just seems a bit like, okay, mate, in New Zealand, having a hard time, are you? But yeah, I have, I have had a shit year and... Um, I burnt out pretty badly. Um, I'm still in recovery from that. And I mean, your summary of high performing since scooping ice cream at 13 isn't far off. And that burnout's triggered and been accompanied by all sorts of personal life changes and health issues. And I've been battling depression and anxiety. And I've had the full gamut of just kind of breaking down and having things break down around me. And that's been an interesting journey because I'm not sure it's what I expected it to be and I'm not sure what's coming next and that's probably that's probably the most interesting thing out of the whole journey really like I don't think we need to mine the depths of my trauma bag today but um I'm a person who is very clear about what I want out of my life usually and very strategic funnily enough about which steps come next and what's required to get there and only being able to plan my energy and my own schedule a day or two in advance and only being able to plan my business a few months in advance is really new territory for me. So that's been interesting. I think you, you've spoken about a couple of things that for me, I hear a lot, feel a lot, see a lot, which is number one, this um, need for grief or trauma or pain comparison. Mm. 
mm. which is oh, my yeah. my grief, my pain, my trauma, whatever I'm experiencing, I don't have the right to feel it as deeply because it's not as bad as someone else, right? So we were, we're in Melbourne. Mm. Obviously, Melbourne went through. We, we're in lockdown number six at the moment. And then, of course, you know, while we were in lockdown last year for what felt like forever, there were other parts of the country going, oh, we, you know, we can't feel bad because Melbourne's got it really bad. And now Melbourne goes into its sixth lockdown and Sydney's been in lockdown for, a, you know, what feels like forever. And now we're going like, should we feel bad? Because like they've been in lockdown for longer. But And, and then yeah. we kind of like we want to almost compare it and feel like, well, I can't feel this as deeply because of someone else. It's deeply unhelpful, isn't it? Mm. You know, when you're a kid and, you're, and you're, your mum's like, there are children starving in Africa that would love your dinner. Stop complaining and eat your silver beet. Like, what, <laughs> what? I mean, that is a race to the bottom and nobody is ever going to win. The thing that, that I'm kind of reflecting on and thinking a lot about is that people would have potentially tuned into this podcast expecting a very different response from you right now. Yeah. Right. Cause people will, people will have known you and I, you know, I know you from, you know, we know each other, but I, if I was to know you just from LinkedIn, we would see you as the kind of corporate rebel, always like, you know, speaking out on really, you know, important issues and always kind of feeling like you're running at 110%. And yeah. so maybe people have tuned in listening to it, expecting a very different response out of you. I'm just going to scribble down corporate rebel. Cause that's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I do like it. I do like it. You are, you, you definitely go against the status quo of a lot of things. Yeah. And which is again, probably another reason why when people are listening to this, it's going against what probably a lot of people were expecting as the conversation, the journey that we were going to take. Yeah. But also not, you know, because if we think about what it takes to, to be a rebel or to challenge or whatever you want to call that, it's really about trying to get just a little bit closer to what might be a version of the truth, right? It's saying what isn't said or what isn't acknowledged or what needs to be said. And in my recent experiences, and this is not a new experience for a lot of people, but it is for me, I have found it extremely challenging to balance or own that side of my personal journey alongside the rest of my life. And I think we we talk a big game at the moment, hashtag break the stigma, whatever, with mental health. But my experience is that it's infinitely more complex than that. And it's also infinitely more simple because it kind of doesn't matter how many ads you put on the TV about breaking stigma and how much you tell people to have conversations or whatever. From a, and this is getting back to my organisational nerd stuff, from a very basic system level perspective, it doesn't matter whether there's stigma if there's not resources and support and we're not geared mm. up to validate the mental aspects of our health with the same gravity as the physical aspects of our health. And I have been, I mean, this is not where I expected this podcast to go, but I have been aghast as somebody who can navigate the health system and has um, confidence speaking to health professionals and access to resources and can go privately at how challenging it is to get any help and how woeful that help is. And I'm mm. just, and the people that most need that support are the most vulnerable and the least able and capable and resourced in terms of accessing it. And I'm just, I'm bitterly disappointed. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad the conversation went this direction because this is something, I mean, you and I just as friends have been chatting about this the last couple of months, mm-hmm. um, even in my own journey. I, I, I'm pretty fortunate in the sense that when I, um, I did marketing as an undergraduate degree, but I did counseling as a postgraduate degree, which is just the most unusual place for me to go from marketing. It does sound a bit psyops, like <laughs> a little bit manipulating, but I know that's not where you're at. <laughs> Well, it it was one of these ones. And the story of how I actually got into counseling was that in 2013, I was in hospital to get a CT scan and I had this um, anaphylactic reaction to contrast dye. And as a result of that, I ended up um, in the ICU for the night and and I nearly died in hospital. And and that for me, that was a a deeply traumatic experience. Didn't realize how much PTSD would come with that experience. Because again, as another kind of high performer, just move forward, kind of do my own thing. Yeah. And I ended up going to see a doctor because I was having these consistent, almost pa- what, what I know now is panic attacks because I felt like I was reliving that experience. So I would feel like I'm having a, an anaphylactic reaction after I would touch something, eat something, but I was perfectly fine. And the doctor sent me to a counselor and it was really hard to get to see a counselor. And when I got there, the experience was really poor. Yeah. And I'm, I'm probably, you know, we probably have this in common. We're both a bit like, I reckon I could do that better. And so literally I had a counseling session in the morning. I called the university in the afternoon. (laughs) I was enrolled the next week and I studied my master's in counseling and I did that for two years. And so that was my response to it. But one of the things that I am deeply grateful for that experience, I realized that counseling wasn't something that I wanted to do, but I, but I, I was so grateful for the experience because what it did teach me was um, to remove some of the my own personal stigmas around yeah. seeking support, seeking help, and and reaching out for help. But the tension and the challenge in all of this is to go, what do you do when you really want support but you can't access it? What do you do when you really want support but the kind of support that you're getting isn't isn't quite there? And that's that's definitely been a challenge I've experienced too. We've woefully under-resourced in terms of just, um, you know, boots on the ground so we don't actually have the people to help the people. But then beyond that, We've made these. We've tried to make these kind of cultural changes or social changes, but that's not supported by system and legislative changes. So we're not investing um, adequate resources in expanding our capacity to train clinical psychologists. And so here's a really here's a good example. I haven't spoken about this publicly, but in um, one of my phases of this process, because there's been one, I was prescribed an antidepressant and an anti-anxiety. Uh, which was great, and went and picked those up and took those t- took those meds. I was having a really hard time adjusting, and you know, I went back to the doctor. I said these side effects are horrific. Like I'm having a really hard time. She, I said my anxiety's higher than ever. I'm I'm having a real physical response. I'm I'm having a really hard time. And she said, yeah, that's that's to be expected. Um, boost the anti-anxiety and um and keep taking more of those. Move up to three times a day, and you're going to be okay. And I'm like, righto. And it just it got worse and worse, and it got to the point where after a month. I was away for work and barely functioning. I was catatonic. I was having seizures. I was drooling like it was something out of a movie. It was horrendous. And um, I was lying on the couch, just horizontal, losing hours at a time, reading the back of the packet of the anti-anxiety because I'd just taken another one because I was like, God, my anxiety is so bad. And I was looking at the um, I was looking at the words on the box and the words on the sticker, and I'm like, these aren't the same words. And that, like I know that there's all sorts of things that happen pharmaceutically in terms of dispensing generic versions of drugs that look different to brand versions and this kind of stuff. So I'm like, it's probably the same, but I'm just going to Google it. So I Google it and I've been prescribed buspirone as an anti-anxiety at five milligrams a dose, three times a day. And I'd been dispensed bupropion at 150 milligrams a dose, 
that I was now having three times a day, which is a completely different drug. So I'd been put on this drug that I shouldn't have been on. I was at the maximum dose that you would be on if you'd, say, worked up to that for three or four years, even if you were supposed to be on it. And I was having a massive health crisis as a result. It really messed me up. And so now I've gone through the formal channels and that's all been resolved, I guess. Anyway, the point from that story is, okay, so I'd been the victim of medical error um, and I'd really suffered as a result of that financially, physically, um, for a period of time. And my recourse for that has been minimal to none. So what I'm really proud to live in a non-litigious society in New Zealand where we don't do tortious medical malpractice law. You can't go after a doctor for malpractice and great, or a pharmacist in this in this case, which is great. And instead of that, we have a publicly funded um, state body that administers public health insurance for accidents and, and errors so that you've still got income protection. But my treatment, A, because it was related to mental health, which our insurance provider, a public insurance provider, ACC, doesn't cover at all. So shoulder injury, great. Knee injury, fine. Mental health, mm, it's not very really real though, is it? They don't cover it. Uh, treatment injury isn't covered if it's a side effect of a medication, even if it's a medication you shouldn't be on. So I've got no recourse from the state. I've got no recourse from the professional who made the mistake. Um, my own personal health insurance and income protection insurance, and I'm insured up to the bloody eyeballs, don't cover anything related to mental health, stress, anxiety, you know, you name it. So I'm sitting here going, oh, okay. So in theory, we're like in the stigma, but in practice, my health concerns are not seen as being as legitimate or as credible as if I'd gone mountain biking and fallen off and hurt my knee or, you know, twisted my shoulder. And even if I am, and first of all, by even saying, and this wasn't my fault, the treatment injury, it's as though implying my depression and anxiety were my fault, which is mad, but the bit that isn't my fault, I still can't get any help for. And so mm. I actually don't care how much money you pour into social marketing and talk about ending stigmas and put famous people on television or, or whatever. If you don't have available resources and support and you don't have a policy setting that validates mental health as being a credible, legitimate health concern, then it's all a waste of time. Mm. And and part of the conversation, this is why it's so helpful to be having the conversation is because we're, we're starting to see that this is not something that is, I don't know, like, and, and it's maybe, it's maybe an old outdated way of thinking that, you know, mental health challenges, um, anxiety is not just something that affects people who are, uh, I, I don't know how we would, how to frame it in a way that's, uh, let me say it in, in a really, what, what I would see as a really offensive way. You know, yeah. it's just people who are not high performers. They've got low yeah. capacity. They're, they're, they're struggling with that. Cause I think that's the old way of thinking mental about mental health. Oh, like you're a loser right? or you're weak or something. You're weak. Yeah. Those are, those are the kind of old ways. And I think we know better now that this is something that affects people who we would perceive as the people who are high performing, high capability, you know, clever people. And it, it doesn't um, discriminate of who, who struggles with some of these challenges. Right. And also, even if it did, so even if it was, if it wasn't something that affected people who were deemed productive members of society, well, fuck that. Who cares? How inherently awful is that? How is that? That's like internalized capitalistic values of your means of production as your only value. Like, yeah, yuck. Hate yeah, it, it is. It, it is it. yuck. 
And and one of the things, and, and this is why I'm, I'm loving this conversation because I think it's a helpful conversation, is the more we talk about it, the more we realise how much it affects other people and the ways that it affects other people. Because we often, we, we get clear and we understand physical health, right? We understand the implications of physical health, but we, we still, because we're not talking about it as frequently and as openly, we don't understand the consequences of mental health. And I remember you shared a story a little while ago about going to, you had a, a, a training session booked in and you were like, well, no, I, I, I've got to go do that first and then I'll go and sort out some of the mental health stuff. Do you remember sharing that story? I can't remember sharing a story, but it sounds exactly like me. <laughs> Well, remember you said it was like um, if I think maybe your your psychologist had said to you if, if you were having um, oh yeah right so yes at the worst at the peak of my I guess for lack of a better word utter breakdown um, I had to I reached crisis point and I had to cancel a bunch of work and I had to um, I had to send my kids away for two or three weeks which is I've never done in my life like I've been a parent for 15, 16 years and. Yeah, that was, it was awful. And that it was a serious crisis point. And I was saying exactly that to my therapist. I said, look, absolutely, I'm going to have a breakdown and I'm going to do that, but I've just got a quick trip to Auckland first and a two-day thing to deliver. And then I'll do it. <laughs> and she was just aghast. And she said exactly that to me. She said, Alicia, you have to treat your health as though you've had a heart attack. Would you be getting on a plane to Auckland if you had a heart attack? I said, no. She said, would you be expected to cook dinner and do the washing and look after your children at the same capacity if you'd had a heart attack? I said, no. She said, well, you need to start behaving like you've had a heart attack because it's just as serious. And the idea that we can even begin to separate, I mean, we love separating, don't we? It's the scientific framework. It's let's just put everything in discrete little boxes that aren't connected. And the reality is that a person is just this, I don't know, like, first of all, we're just a walking bacteria sack, aren't we? Like, there's more bacteria on us <laughs> than human cells. So we're just this, we're this bacteria casing, and then that bacteria casing is driven by this kind of very complex and bizarre network of just hormones and chemicals and you've got brain activity and you've got body activity and you've got gut activity and it's all like panging around and you think you're this rational human being and you're just not. <laughs> so the idea that we can separate it out and be like, no, but this is a legitimate digestive concern, but this is a physiological response to stress and this is emotional mental health. I mean, shut up. It's all just, there's Alicia McGuire medical degree for you. <laughs> <laughs> which which I should definitely clarify. We're, we're, we're not in any way kind of therapists or psychologists. Um, but I had this conversation with um, with ACC when they ran me up and said, Leash, we can't, um, we can't approve your claim. I'm really sorry what happened to you, but it doesn't fall under the legislative definition of treatment injury. She said, when you were really dizzy and having seizures, if you'd fallen over, that would have been great because then if you'd hurt your knee or your hip or something, we could have claimed for that. And she said, or if you'd had like, more permanent kidney damage because I had to get all my organ function checked afterwards because it put such a load on my system. She said, if you'd had like some kidney damage, that would have been good because we could have paid out for that. She said, but pain doesn't count. Fatigue doesn't count. Uh, you know, and I'm like, wow, that's what we've decided. Somebody somewhere has gone when they've had to draw the, the boxes around what's legitimate as a health concern and what isn't has gone. These ones, tick. These ones, not. And, hey, I get it, we've moved on, but it's time that we move on. And I don't want to hear any more conversations about breaking down stigmas or calling a friend or going for a flippin' walk or meditating if we don't have policy settings that establish a system that makes sure that mental and emotional health is a credible health 
area and concern. Until we see that, I don't give a shit about your stigma. I don't mind being stigmatized. I'll just like a hand, please. <laughs> yep. So, and it makes perfect sense. It, it really does. I mean, one of the things that I, I, I'm really grateful for me personally, it, it doesn't carry um, a, a personal stigma to talk about. I'm really yeah. open about it. I put something on my Instagram um, and social media just recently about what my anxiety looks like for me. Um, because again, I think going back to that experience in 2013, a lot of that PTSD kind of, I, I was what I would consider performing my way through having to deal with that. And so when obviously the pandemic hits, everything slows down. And especially within a pandemic, you've got a lot of health related conversations that you cannot avoid on the news every day. Um, You can't open social media. You can't open the news. You can't watch TV without being triggered in some way around health. I couldn't avoid that thing anymore. Thinking about it. it's one of those things you just couldn't avoid. And so I had to go back to my psychologist again and actually start to reprocess some of this stuff. And one of the things that was helpful for me was to kind of be able to talk through and and name it um, as something that for me wasn't as scary. So a lot of people talk about anxiety as like the monster or the, you know, the beast or things like that. And I, the thing that I hate about that experience is that it it treats it as something to avoid or something to fear. And so for me, I called it the baby elephant and that was the thing. So, uh, you know, I, cause I, the reason why I call it that is, you know, when you see those videos of like the zookeepers or whatever, and they're playing with the baby elephants and they're like playful and, you know, they're all those experience, but then they don't know when they've gone too far and they'll jump on the zookeeper and the zookeeper's getting crushed. And they're like, it's hurting me. It's hurting me. Do you know what I mean? The reason why I think it's playful is that in many ways, most of our emotions and our anxiety has a really pure intention. It's to keep us safe. It's to keep I us know. out of harm. Oh, I love It has really story. good intentions, but then it doesn't know when it goes too far. And so sometimes I say, my baby elephant's sitting on my arms right now because my arms feel weak or it's on my chest because my chest feels heavy or it's on my stomach because I'm feeling sick. And it allows me to be a little bit more playful with the experience rather than feeling like I'm so scared because something's crushing me right now. Oh, Shane, that's so gorgeous. That's actually gorgeous. So I don't have it. It's a different way. But I think about a voice. So I talk to the Mm. voice and I'm like, if I can hear the voice, then I've already done half the job. And it's exactly what it is. Hey, I totally get this response. I know you're trying to keep me safe. I know you're trying to prevent me from getting hurt or whatever that is. Um, I don't need you today. Thanks for showing up. Mm. But I don't need you today. I've got this. And it's a similar thing. It's I can see that you're coming at me with, you are the accumulation of my life experiences and programming and you're trying to keep me safe because you think I can't handle this. It's all right, mm. mate. I got it. Piss off. Yeah. <laughs> So I, and I this really, is this I'm is really, why it's so helpful to talk about, right? Because you hear different people's experiences, and one of the things I asked people was, "What were some of the strategies that you used to be able to navigate this?" Yeah. Because a lot of the people we hang around are really high performing people, and people who listen to this podcast, they're in leadership, they're in in high performing roles, and maybe just maybe there's a few people that are listening to us to this who are going, "I." have been wrestling and avoiding this kind of anxiety. Maybe I don't know what it is. I don't know what to call it. And just hearing other people who are high-performing people talk about it can normalise that this is an experience that we all go through at some point, right? I mean, I don't know what your policy is on swearing on this podcast, Shane, but I've probably already broken (laughs) it. Um, But I was on tour uh, a couple of weeks ago. Funnily enough, when I was still coming off these horrendous drugs, I wasn't supposed to be on. And so it was like a weekend at Bernie's type situation where they were just like putting me up on the stage. And I was like, hello. And then I was going and lying back down again for 23 hours in between and then getting back up like, it's me again. Um, but one of the things that I was saying on this tour, which was all about getting your shit sorted, the most powerful body language response I got in the room was when I said on stage, just to be very clear, everyone's a bit fucked right now. And everyone's like, I'm like, everyone has walked in here going, they've got, 
a health problem or they're not happy in their relationship or they're stuffed up at work or their kid's being an asshole or they're not sure if they're meant to be here or they're looking around going, everyone else looks more professional and assured than I am. And I no, everyone else got their shit together and I'm the only one who's turned up here with all the stuff going on today. And actually, we've all turned up with all our stuff going on. And when we pretend we don't, it's really isolating because then everyone feels like they're the only one that doesn't have their life together. And actually, everyone's a bit fucked, even if you don't have depression or anxiety or whatever it is. Um, you know, Lisa O'Neill once told me that you should assume everyone's life is hard. And I really took that to heart because I think we should assume everyone's life is hard. Maybe not on an objective spectrum, and this speaks to your point earlier about comparative grief or comparative struggle. Let's just assume that everybody is having a hard time in some way and that if we default to compassion, we might occasionally get taken for a ride, but most of the time people will appreciate it. Mm. And that's been a helpful frame for me. But I think what I find hard from this kind of lens chain of leadership or productivity or, um, I don't know, mental health in the workplace or whatever that is, is it feels like it's got this kind of, I don't know, like this shadow on it for me that's this implicit unsaid assumptional driver that speaks to what we said before about doesn't matter if you're high perform like this gets high performing people too that says we need to fix this so you can go back to being good at work or your value the reason that you're worth helping with your mental health is because usually you're really good at work and because you're a good performer at work you deserve something more than just your inherent humanness would would d- dictate or let's help people out because actually it's a productivity hack if you meditate you'll be more efficient or if you exercise, you'll get extra hours in your day. Or if you're mentally, if your workers are mentally healthy, they'll show up and be more productive. Because as we know, that's the thing that matters the most. And mm. I'm like, oh, do we have to do it like this? Does it have to be some kind of jargon encased organizational bullshit? Or could it just be like, want to be a person that doesn't have such a tough time? Let us help you with that because you're worth it. Yeah. That's a, that's a confronting thought because again, like it, it is easy to fall into the trap of wanting to bring out the best in people for a particular outcome, right? Yeah. So they're at work to produce an outcome. And again, this is taking it to another level and going, what if we just, rather than helped our people produce better outcomes, we helped our people be better people. Yeah. What if as a leader, my responsibility was not just to drive results or drive performance, but my result, my my role as a leader was to influence people to become better versions of themselves. And then maybe in the process of that, if that was our intention, then the best version of ourselves being, brings the best of ourselves to work. Yeah, and not even, so I'm a little bit maybe lefty happy dippy about this, but I mean, I think we all have, a responsibility and I think we all have the responsibility to contribute whatever it is that we've got because um, that's how the system works that's the social contract you need to contribute in whichever way you're able to um, so that everybody benefits because not everybody can contribute and if you've got something someone else probably it's a bit communist isn't it but from like a <laughs> skills and capabilities point of view if you've got something and someone else doesn't have that opportunity well it's your job to do your bit and offer it to the world as and when you can right I've got a firm belief in that And I think if we're all operating from that standpoint, then places do run better, you know. But what I battle with is the way that we've co-opted values and a sense of contribution and uh, a social mindedness 
through this cold commercial lens at the moment where we're told that purpose pays. And so I walked into Foot Locker the other day with my children and they were looking for a pair of sneakers and every sneaker brand had their own rainbow shoe so that you could show your support for the LGBTQTI community through your shoes. I don't really think that Vans and Converse and everybody are really that upset about contributing to a lack of discrimination against gender and sex identity. I think they'd like to sell some shoes. And I feel a bit dirty and a bit grimy and a bit sold to at the prospect of my rainbow lanyard and my rainbow shoes. I just, yeah. So, I, I mean, I've gone, a bit, I've gone a bit tangential, Shane, but I guess the point is that I think we all lose when we frame our desire to be better people and have a better place to world to live in, and this is a little bit um, Pollyanna, through a lens of productivity, profit, and efficiency. I think we all lose when we do that. And I've got a problem with the word leadership, which is ridiculous because I just wrote a book, and it stays on. <laughs> it's a good book. Leadership lessons that cut through the crack. And I think we've taken that trendy kind of leadership thing and gone we're all a leader but we're actually just talking about managers and actually leaders aren't managers if you look throughout history when we've studied leadership we're looking at people that contribute whether they're contributing to a new way of thinking or they're contributing to a social cause or they're contributing by running a country or leading an army or you know they're contributing something beyond their post in the world leadership is contribution and that's available to everybody that's about being a person and about contributing to the world you live in so absolutely we need better leaders but we don't need better leaders because we need more efficiently run business units we need better leaders because we need people to show up in their community and in their family and in their relationships and at work and in general and just be less shit I'm cheering you on on the other side of this and everything you were saying there. I, I absolutely believe that the world needs more great leaders. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the whole conversation that we could have if we had maybe a bit more time, but I guess let's try and have it in a more succinct way, which is this leads me to the question of how do you then be the kind of leader that supports people like you and and me through the challenges that we're going through right now? Because I'm sure that there's people right now that they've got people on their team and the support systems that that maybe that individual needs outside of work is not there right now. And someone's listening to this, hearing a story like yours and hearing a story like mine going, Oh my gosh, there's probably people on my team that are like this, that need my help. How do, what what on earth am I supposed to do? How do we help? Oh, this is actually really easy. One, be a real person. So um, rather than showing up and I think it's a, it's a battle for people in the workplace when they hear this um, insistence toward authenticity to work out how to do that in a way that still provides genuine direction and comforting leadership and management for people. I get that. But one, be a real person on your own struggles because that's the most powerful way to turn up. If you are like looking after these poor little poor little mental health mates or poor little stressed out mates from a perspective, from the, from a platform, that's unhelpful, right? And so be a vulnerable person who's able to own a piece of your personness to connect with others is number one and number two um systems not slogans if you want to support people through mental health don't put a poster on the wall don't run free meditation on a friday create a system inside your workplace where calling in sad is just as credible and just as legitimate as calling in sick it's really that simple 
I love that. Calling in sad is just as legitimate as calling in sick. It's such a helpful conversation. And I, I know um, we're friends, but I, I really appreciate you sharing your story in a more open forum yeah. um, because I think the more people hear stories and they, they can see what it looks like for other people. And I'm sure there are people who are listening to this who follow you on LinkedIn who only know your LinkedIn. You're a bit of an open book there as well, to be honest. Well, I'm starting, I'm starting to be, Shane, because I'm realising that First of all, you have to practice what you preach. So if I'm telling people to be real and connect with others on a real level, if they want to um, make a real difference in the work that they do, whatever space that works in, then I have to do that, right? Because that's how alignment works. But also I've kind of got nothing to fear, I guess is what I'm starting to realise as I get, I say older, but let's be clear, I'm still very young. Um, <laughs> I kind of don't have anything to fear. So if it's, and, and that's a real privilege and coming back to my point before, that means I have a responsibility. So I can't get fired from my job because I'm my boss and I get to pick and choose who I work with because I've been doing this for a decade and there are enough people want to work with me that if I don't want to work with them, I don't have to. And so I've got this privilege that says I get to be both professionally credible and successful and be authentic and open about things that matter and things I find hard. If I don't use that privilege and contribute that for people that don't have the same privilege because they don't then I'm not doing my bit so I think it's time for me to do my bit and I don't usually speak this openly about it as I have with you but I think I'm starting to because that's something useful I can do grateful that you have and I'm grateful that you do um because it, it really does make a difference and um I know, uh, you know, we, we originally set up the conversation, we were going to talk through some of the conversations in your book, but I think what you're seeing in this conversation is actually the essence of what's, um, of who you are. And yeah. that comes through in the book. And so you wrote a book, you don't need an MBA, which is leadership lessons that cut through the crap. And what you did today was a demonstration of leadership, a leadership lesson that really does cut through the crap and cuts to the core of what we need to be talking about. Actually, it's funny you say that. My um, When the books turned up at my house, so the publisher buyback is a thousand books, right? So one day, all of a sudden, a thousand books turn up on your doorstep, just with these <laughs> massive boxes and boxes. I was in Melbourne in that very brief period, bubble was open, um, when all my books arrived. And the lady that feeds my cat, <laughs> I get on really well with, was like, hey, Alicia, uh, a pallet's just turned up full of boxes. I said, yeah, any chance you want to shift them inside? <laughs> so she got her partner around and they shifted all the books into my house. Anyway, I said, grab a couple of books as you go. You know, thanks for that. Um, I, I paid her to let's be clear before anyone thinks I'm running okay. my labour ring. And she rang me up and she said, okay, this is so weird because she doesn't operate in the space of who would genuinely buy the book. She said, all I can hear is your voice reading me this book. She said, I'm reading it. And it's your voice and it's written in the way that you speak. And I'm like, well, that's a win. If someone, she's like, I can't stop reading it. And it just feels like you're talking to me. I'm like, well, that's great. <laughs> it, uh, to be honest, the way you write is is entirely in your voice. And I hear your voice at, when I read your books as well. Because it's not the first book you've written. You've written another one as well um, on strategy of action, which is which is a great book for people to read. Give us the give us the synopsis of the book. Like what's the big idea behind oh, writing an MBA? Yeah. Oh, look, it's my book. Do you know what's the most exciting thing about this book is Seth Godin's on the cover saying it's a good book. And this is basically what made my whole life. I mean, <laughs> you don't even need me to sell it to you. Seth Godin said it's good and he's the man. But I mean, the, the gist of the book isn't too far away from what we're talking about, which is that we kind of operate inside a, a framework or an assumption about how you be successful that doesn't really line up with what we need. And so mm. the skills that we train in and we're promoted for and we're incentivized 
at some point in our career, the rug gets pulled out from under us and they're no longer the things that we need. In fact, they're the things that hold us back. So if you've become a really successful salesperson or engineer or scientist or statistician or whatever you are, and you continue to ascend the traditional ladder, at a certain point, what makes you a great, great at your job is can you lead through change? Can you make decisions in ambiguity? Can you take people on a journey? Do you know how to stay flexible? Can Right? Have you built resilience and um, focus into your organisation? All of these things. But no one ever teaches you those things. And so you're like, I'm a really good scientist. I'm a really good scientist. I'm a really good scientist with a team of five. Oh, narrow led organisational change. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> and it, like no one warns you that it's coming, but it comes. And then so they're like, well, shit, I need some professional development. And so you'll either go and like do a personality test and find out what your disc or your Myers or your bird or your or a colour or whatever is, and that'll help put you in a box. And then you might start looking for things like executive MBAs, MBAs, or, you know, 12 or 15-month leadership programs. They cost a fortune, and what they're going to teach you are more technical skills that you don't have. They're going to teach you how to optimise your balance sheet and your supply chain and marketing and sales, and that's great. It'll cost you 50 grand and take you three years, and you come out and you'll be like, cool, um, so now we have a pandemic, got to set everyone to work from home remotely, and I still don't know how to manage this <laughs> environment, right? And so I think there's a we're tricked a bit, and there's a bunch of really important skills that if you take the career lens out of it, that we need to feel good about our work and our life, that we have treated as being quite inherent, and the good judgment and seeing how things fit together and asking good questions and working out how to focus people's energy and your own and I don't think we get taught them, but we're punished if we don't have them. And so that's what I've observed in my work over a number of years. And that's what convinced me to write this book. Because I went, hey, the reason you're finding it hard isn't because you suck. You're working really hard. The reason you're finding it hard is because there are skills that you aren't taught, but are learnable. And I would yeah. like to help you with some of those. And that's what my book's about. I love it. And a great book. And also you've got a, a program coming up that um, I'll put all the details to the book and to the, the program that's coming up that people can join to be a part of that. Cause I think any way that people can engage your work, they're, they're going to become a better human, um, not just a better leader. And Aww. so I would encourage them more to connect with you on LinkedIn as well. Just stick, stick around and, and connect to your journey. Cause I think whatever it is that is next for you will be a, just as significant. I have no doubt. And um, just want to say thanks for number one, sharing your story, normalizing this conversation, this experience for people. Um, and number two, for just being a really great human and, and joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much, Alicia. Oh, stop it. Thank you. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.